welcome to Good Cop, Bad Cop, the podcast where we tell you the stories of figures and events from the real and fictional worlds of law enforcement. We're trying to really understand what it means to be a good or bad cop. Now, this is the first ever episode of Good Cop, Bad Cop, so I think it's only right that I start things off with a special. Today is basically a supplementary episode because for us to understand what it means to be a good or bad cop, we first need to know where they came from and why we have them. And to do that, this episode is going to focus on English history, tracing a line from the very first shepherds all the way through to the founding of the first modern police force. But I know some of you out there are thinking, why English history? And to be fair, that is a valid question. You know, every nation has a unique context which gave it the cops it has today. And that context, it doesn't just inform how those cops see themselves, but also how their respective communities see them. Take, for example, the slave patrols within the history of American policing. And for reasons like this, I'll certainly be releasing more origin episodes in future. But today, we are focusing on English history. And that's because, largely on account of the British Empire, many of the world's policing traditions stem from the history of a small nation on a small island. So where do we begin? Well, technically, our story begins long before recorded history. And that is a problem, because without records, there's not much that can actually be said. But this is why I found the work of Secret Service agent turned author Milton Lipson really useful. Lipson believed that policing likely traced back to the very first shepherds that emerged during the Stone Age. So I want you all to go on a journey with me. Imagine you live in a time when we were still nomadic hunter-gatherers. You've just woken up and you're hungry. Naturally, you walk towards the exit of your cave, throw on the first animal fur you can find, and you head out to slay the nearest mammoth. But a few moments later, you realise that. For the third time this week, you've left the cave without anything to hunt with. So you go back, you grab a sharpened stick, and you head out again. But wait. As you leave the cave, you spot someone just ahead of you that you've never seen before, and they're heading in the direction of your mammoth. They're built like a Stone Age Hercules, and have an axe in either hand. Now you're pretty sure this Tarzan wannabe is trying to steal your breakfast. You're also pretty sure that he'll bury those axes deep within your skull, given half a chance. And not that you're a show-off, but your stick game is on point. So what are you going to do about it? Do you A. Spear him with a sharp stick from range B. Sneak up on him before impaling him with your sharp stick or C. Let him have the first go at the mammoth before finishing off whoever's left standing. And if you chose C, well done, because you're smart. But regardless of your answer, I think we can all see why Lipson described the laws of these times as being the primitive rules of kinship, blood feuds, and revenge. And when humans began to domesticate animals and crops, these rules would prove to be a problem. As we all know today, there are loads of benefits that come from settling in one place and getting food from farms instead of having to hunt or forage. But even in the Stone Age, More money meant more problems. Okay, so you're back living in the past again, and both Tarzan and the mammoth have managed to get away. Your hunger has now turned into hanger, 
and so you decide to kill two birds with one stone. Although, not literally, because that would make this analogy pointless. You head back to the cave, round up a few clan members, and set off to raid Tarzan's clan, figuring that you'll take their food instead of going hunting again. So the group begins tracing his tracks, and you notice that you're beginning to venture into unexplored territory. Suddenly, you look up and see the strangest thing. Over to your right, you notice a bunch of weird structures with sides made out of woven sticks and mud, and a bunch of straw and seaweed on top. Utterly confused, your group heads closer, and notices that one of the structures is roofless, and, as if by some magic, it's filled with sheep. Remembering that you're hungry, do you A. Continue tracking Tarzan, not knowing where you'll end up, and with no guarantee of getting breakfast, or B. Just take a sheep. Or to use a much briefer analogy, answer this. Would you rather hit a static or moving target? Here we can see why the move away from a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle created a need for early humans to select certain clan members to act as either warriors or shepherds. Because in a world of kinship, blood feuds and revenge, we didn't just need people who could attack, but also those who could defend. And so... That's all for the Stone Age, an era noticeably devoid of cops. But equally, this was a time when our modern distinctions between the military and the police were just completely redundant. So, although our story technically began in the Stone Age, it realistically begins just a few thousand years later, during the Iron Age. And by the time of the Roman Empire, private security and private justice were widespread across its territories. And this was great, you just needed to be filthy rich because if you were poor and someone came into your home, guess what, you were going to get rid of them yourselves. If you were wealthy, you had access to special guards, patrollers, chief doormen, and even watchtowers. However, the Roman approach to justice was not so widespread on the very remote, particularly hard one, and fairly hard to keep Roman province of Britannia. And throughout the occupation, the Empire kept a large and permanent garrison here. Because when the people kicked off in Britannia, they kicked off in style. A style so serious and so organised that Romans had to deal with them through a military response. In fact, if you look throughout the occupation, then in at least one part of the island, you'd find Roman forces fighting in active combat. All that said, Romans could actually be quite chill. The majority of Britannia's population were the lower classes living outside of major towns or cities, and provided that they didn't seriously threaten Roman rule, they tended to be bound more by Celtic than Roman law. Now, when I say Celt, what do you imagine? A lot of people will conjure up this historical picture of a barbaric and primitive culture organised around elite warriors. But realistically, that picture is probably an over-exaggeration. After all, our source material overwhelmingly comes from the Roman invaders and not the native Celts. So I think, on balance, it's probably fair to think of Celtic law as being a somewhat evolved version of Lipson's primitive rules of kinship, blood feuds and revenge. And so, just like the Stone Age, again, within the Roman era, we have a notable absence of cops. Britannia was a mishmash of law enforcement systems 
That would depend on who you were and where you lived. And ultimately, none of these come close to resembling what we recognize as policing today. Before I move on, I should also note one more thing, and that's that when people talk about the benefits of empire, past or present, many like to point out the peace they bring. The peace that comes from killing all of your enemies. And this was no different for the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana means Roman peace, and it refers to the 200 years of relative peace and order following the beginning of the empire. But with Rome's famous decline and fall, came the end of Pax Romana. And indeed, the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire left a huge power vacuum, and there was no one up to the job of filling it. The result was centuries of instability, as the empire's former territories reverted back to Lipson's primitive rules. And so within this context, clans began to focus on hiring, or raising, violent individuals who could be soldiers, police, and private guards all at the same time. So, distracted elsewhere, the Romans officially withdrew from Britannia at around the year 410 AD. And it's not much later this century that the island began to witness the arrival of a new set of invaders. Now, there's actually quite some debate about whether the Anglo-Saxons came to England as invaders or simply immigrants, but for our purposes, that doesn't really matter because all we need to know is that over the next 500 years, Anglo-Saxon culture became English culture. During this time, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of East Anglia, Essex, Kent, Mercia, Northumbria, Sussex and Wessex would emerge across England. And in 927 AD, they united to create the first English nation under King Ethelstan of Wessex. And make no mistake, the Anglo-Saxons are the biggest innovators in this origin story. What the Wright brothers were to flight, the Anglo-Saxons were to justice. And unlike justice today, the Anglo-Saxons built their systems on the concept of collective, not personal responsibility. Do you remember those teachers in school that you hated because they'd punish the whole class regardless of who did what? Well, yeah, the Anglo-Saxons are that teacher. I think their emphasis on collective responsibility is best demonstrated through a custom known as the hue and cry. Very simply, this was a legal obligation to continuously scream for help if you witnessed a crime. And in turn, any able-bodied men in earshot were legally obliged to assist you. And you know what, guys? Look, I'm going to be completely honest. As an ethnic minority, it's not often that I look back in history and think, wow, that would be so cool if we did that today. But the human cry is one of the few exceptions because I think widespread collective obligations just like this, whether they're legally enforced or not, are exactly the type of thing that is missing from Western society today. All that said, the Anglo-Saxon's main contribution to this origin story was the first standardised and public system of justice in England known as tithing. So, under the tithing system, ten households would be organised into groups, known as tens. All households within a ten were responsible for each other's security, but they were also responsible for any crimes committed by someone else in the same ten. Punishments ranged from violence to victim compensation, but members could avoid them by delivering the wrongdoer to the authorities. 
The Tens also elected a leader known as a tithingman, and they had the foremost responsibility for bringing a wrongdoer to a court of justice. After the Tens came the Hundreds. These were 10 units of 10 formed together to create 100 households. And in turn, each hundred also elected their own hundredmen. And so, yeah, I guess to recap, I did call the Anglo-Saxons innovative, but no, clearly it doesn't extend to the naming conventions. Eventually, the hundreds were again grouped into bigger sets, forming what we still refer to today in England as shires and boroughs. The king also began to appoint a law enforcement officer known as a reeve for each shire. The Shire Reeve's job was to oversee the peace and collect taxes for the crown. And so, unlike those that preceded it, in this era, we have finally found a position that at least slightly resembles a cop. However, Shire Reeves, later becoming known as sheriffs, didn't really get their hands dirty at this time in history. They were more magistrates than police officers. And well, that pretty much concludes the Anglo-Saxon era, because... Also, like the Wright brothers, they couldn't stay on top of the game for very long. And less than a century later, it's 1066, and surprise, surprise, England is being invaded again. William, Duke of Normandy, becomes William the Conqueror after he triumphs at the Battle of Hastings and takes the English crown. Happy days? Well, generally, people aren't too keen when you invade their country, kill their king, and then tell them that you're in charge. And William had a strong preference for his head remaining on his shoulders. And so naturally, his first priority was to consolidate and tighten up England's security arrangements. And this really set the tone for Norman rule because, if I'm being honest, their innovations were less about justice and more about not being killed by the natives. In terms of policing specifically, what the Normans did was take the foundations laid by the Anglo-Saxons and simply mix in a little bit of je ne sais quoi. For example, they tightened up the tithing system under an expanded version known as Frank Pledge. English people can now expect a much harsher approach to collective responsibility. Do you remember when I said the Anglo-Saxons were that teacher that just loved group punishments? Well, the Normans are that teacher too, only now they're taking everyone's valuables. So, as part of Frank Pledge, sheriffs would travel throughout their shires to meet with the hundreds, hear the cases of the accused brought by tithing men, and collect that sweet, sweet fine money. In the 12th century, tithing men and hundred men started to be referred to as constables. But, unfortunately for them, and unlike the greedy sheriffs, they'd still be working for free for hundreds of years to come. And over time, even the sheriffs started to get their hands dirty with their responsibilities shifted towards what we'd imagine today, with them actually catching criminals themselves. So, largely on account of the Normans being absolutely unbearable, it's within this era of sheriffs and constables that we see the earliest cops within our origin story. The next radical transformation of English policing came later in the Middle Ages. Towards the end of the 13th century, things were going south. More property was being stolen, more buildings were being set alight, more people were being murdered, and King Edward I said, enough. And in 1285, 
he decided to formalise England's local security arrangements by declaring the Statue of Winchester. This statute had three major elements. Firstly, it re-emphasised everyone's obligations surrounding the Anglo-Saxon hue and cry. Secondly, it reaffirmed something known as the Assize of Arms. This was a proclamation originally declared by King Henry II in 1181. It was basically the Second Amendment on steroids. Every free man in England was legally required to own weapons and armour so that they could go and take care of business if anything major kicked off outside. And the richer you were, the more you had to have. But most importantly, the statute created a nationwide system of watches. The watch sought to protect properties against fire, guard city walls, maintain order, and monitor public behaviour and manners. Watchmen would patrol cities with clubs and swords, and could only really be distinguished by their lanterns and staffs. And a bit like jury duty today, service in the watch was a mandatory requirement. If you refuse to serve, you'd be punished. And let me tell you, not many people wanted to serve, because unlike today's jury duty, a day's service in the watch came with zero compensation. For a poorer man, a day's service in the watch was a day he could have spent earning money to ensure his family's survival. After all, law and order is just not that useful when you've starved to death. And so, absolutely no one will be surprised by the next turn of events, because guess what? Rich men could get out of the watch service quite easily. All they had to do was pay someone else. And therefore, the late Middle Ages presents another critical milestone in this origin story, because it's within this era that we see the first widespread opportunity for English citizens to be paid in exchange for doing police work. But given that pay would come from a private individual, if you're lucky, I'm not too sure we can consider watchmen to be cops. Close, but no cigar. I should also point out that whilst the statute of Winchester was clearly revolutionary for its time, its problems were also just as clear. Firstly, by making the watch an unpaid and yet compulsory position, the statute may have unintendedly played a role in destroying the widespread collective responsibility left by the Anglo-Saxons. Beyond that, it created a perception of policing as work that wasn't deserving of good pay, or in many cases, any pay at all. And when we combine these factors together, it seems to me that the statute helped sow the seeds of a problem that we're actually still experiencing today. When you take declining beliefs in collective responsibility, and mix in a reduced willingness of people to serve in policing roles, you ultimately increase the demand for policing whilst decreasing the number and quality of the people willing to do it. Now, this is my personal take, but to me, it seems like a recipe for disaster. Or perhaps it's better said in the words of historian Robert Shoemaker, in that what previously had been done out of a sense of obligation now had to be achieved by offering a reward. Now no one could be expected to contribute to law enforcement without proper remuneration. Fast forward to the industrial age. It's the late 18th century and disaster has indeed struck. Ask anyone around. In the words of a contemporary, they'll probably tell you that lawlessness has reached heights worse than ever known in history. Now ask them why. Well, there could be a few reasons, but almost everyone will mention the thief-taker system. 
Thief takers represented a pretty wild time in English history, and between the 16th and 18th centuries, they were essentially England's private police force. They were individual bounty hunters who received rewards from the king for every criminal they arrested. And these rewards existed on a sliding scale from sheep thief to street robber, with some specific criminals also carrying huge bounties. But here's the big flaw in the system. Many thief takers had accepted that job as an alternative to being punished for a crime. And for that reason, it won't surprise you that it was often thief takers who were the criminals who needed to be caught. From entrapment all the way to the framing of innocent people, the thief taker system probably ended up creating more crime than it solved. And despite all of that, to catch a criminal, you have to know how to think like one. And victims and the authorities had no choice but to rely on a thief taker's specialised skills. From their knowledge of how to track people to their understanding of criminal networks, often on account of comprising them. When you take the original resentment towards mandatory watch service and mix in a new reliance on this corrupt thief-taking system, you won't be surprised to learn just how poorly people viewed everything to do with policing. Henry Fielding, a contemporary figure who we'll come on to later, very articulately summed up public attitudes, saying, There is no country in which less honour is gained by serving the public. He, therefore, who commits no crime against the public, is very well satisfied with his own virtue. Far from thinking himself obliged to undergo any labour, expend any money, or encounter any danger on such account. And before we move on, I think I'm going to address the elephant in the room. You may have noticed that this podcast is published by an organisation by the name of Thief Taker. And now I guess, regardless of whether you notice or not, you're probably wondering, why the choice of name? Well, I think it's important for us to recognise that the quality of a private individual fulfilling a policing function is not inherently bad. In fact, history shows us that when properly organised, aligned to the right goals and motivated by the correct incentives, a group of private individuals can radically reform the criminal justice system. And indeed, Henry Fielding and his younger brother John were two men who knew just how to do this. Magistrates of Bow Street Court in London, I'd easily put these two in my Justice Hall of Fame. Spurred on by a recent increase in robberies, in 1748, Henry Fielding started his mission to reduce crime as a Westminster magistrate. One year later, he established the law enforcement group that we now know as the famous Bow Street Runners, a group that John would take to even higher heights on Henry's passing. The Fielding brothers began by creating a stolen property alert system, and they did that by establishing relationships with pawnbrokers. They then created the first official crime reports by using newspaper adverts which persuaded victims to report crime to the Bow Street office. Alongside a handful of constables, the Fieldings then recruited a number of thief-takers to work under their direction as magistrates. And by doing this, they helped give an air of legitimacy to the thief-takers that worked underneath them. These staff were eventually trained in a range of investigatory skills, from questioning suspects to giving evidence at court. 
And as is often the case in policing, the Bow Street runners weren't immediately liked. However, they were soon able to dispatch thief takers to pursue a culprit as soon as a crime had been reported. Their success helped transform the attitudes of Londoners regarding policing, and responsibility for law enforcement soon began to shift from the public to these magistrates and their semi-official thief-takers. And so it's with the Bow Street Runners that we really enter the modern era of policing. Whilst we still haven't found cops exactly like the ones we know and understand today, the remaining parts of this origin story come thick and fast. So, in 1798, another magistrate by the name of Patrick Colquhoun established the Thames River Police. You see, dock merchants had become very concerned about theft along London's docks, and so they agreed to fund this organisation in order to solve the problem. Unlike the reactive approach of the Bow Street Runners, the Thames River Police were all about the P. Prevention. And so, by keeping up a continued patrol presence, they proved to be extremely successful in deterring crime around the docks. So successful that in 1800, the government converted the Thames River Police into a publicly run and publicly funded body. And therefore, from kinship and blood feuds to tithing and frank pledge, sheriffs and watchmen to magistrates and thief-takers, we have finally arrived at England's first official, albeit small-scale, police force. The first cops as we know and understand today. And yet, despite extremely high rates of crime and disorder, many English citizens were just sceptical about the idea of an official police force. And to be fair, after the history we've just discussed, you can't really blame them. Some felt that a police force would threaten their freedoms, and many just preferred that things were left to the private sector, rather than their taxes being spent on policing. But by the beginning of the 1800s, it was estimated that one in every 22 people in England was a professional criminal. And to put that into perspective, today that would mean over two and a half million people in England. Due to industrialization, the population was skyrocketing, class structure was changing, and it was becoming even more difficult for the government to maintain law and order. And they especially struggled with large-scale disorder. Because without an official large-scale police force, the military were often called upon to put down riots and protests. For example, in 1819, thousands of peaceful protesters gathered in St. Peter's Square in Manchester to demand an extension of the vote beyond wealthy landowners. The local government's response was to send in volunteer soldiers who violently broke up the protest, killing between 10 and 20 and injuring hundreds. And it was reasons such as this, that prompted attitudes to shift just enough to allow the then Home Secretary, Robert Peel, to pass the Metropolitan Police Act of 1829. And as you may have guessed, the Act established the Metropolitan Police, the first large-scale, uniformed, organised, paid and civilian police force in London. In 1839, the Met absorbed the Bow Street Runners and Thames River Police, and for the next century, its size would continue to increase. The ideas of personal and collective responsibility for law enforcement would now fully give way to a reliance on official, publicly funded police forces. The cops that we know today. 
And so without a doubt, we have now arrived at the end of our origin story, a story with insights into what it means to be a good or bad cop. The first being that for most of history, you could say that everyone was a cop. You were the one with the responsibility to protect yourself and community as well as hold them accountable. And secondly, it would seem that people often consider a good cop to be a cheap cop. And look, I get it. People want their police officers to serve out of a sense of duty and not because they want to make money. But I think there's a very real tension between wanting good policing and not being willing to pay for it. Because realistically, I think the evidence shows that a cheap cop is a bad cop. We've seen just how much corruption and ineffectiveness these types of systems breed, helping to actually increase crime and dissuading the type of people we want as police officers from actually joining. Even today, point me to a country where the police are paid a pittance and I will show you a country where police corruption is rife. If we want good cops, we have to be willing to pay for them. But most importantly, this origin story has shown that throughout history, people have considered a good cop to be a fair cop. In being expected to legally use violence as part of their day-to-day, police officers exist in a space that is also occupied by people like soldiers and private security staff. What distinguishes a cop from a security guard is that, just like soldiers, they're oath and duty-bound to act in the public interest. And beyond being more focused on the use of non-lethal means, What distinguishes a cop from a soldier is that their violence isn't something expected to occur far away from the public. Rather, the police are integrated within all aspects of civil life, and it's therefore understandable why police forces were, and sometimes still are, associated with fear and repression. And so the idea of a police force is far less scary when cops are perceived to be fair. It was for this very reason that Robert Peel issued a set of general instructions to every new constable of the Metropolitan Police in 1829. Some of these later becoming known as the Peelian Principles, they emphasised the need for cops to act as an alternative to military force and severe legal punishments, to recognise that their powers stem from public approval of their existence, to only use force as a last resort, and even then, only when absolutely necessary, to act impartially, to refrain from acting as judges, to remember that their success lies in the absence of crime, not the evidence of them tackling it, and most famously, that the police are the public, and that the public are the police. And so, this concludes the first episode of Good Cop, Bad Cop. Next time we'll be taking a much deeper dive into the world of thief takers to tell you the story of the OG corrupt cop and thief taker general Jonathan Wilde. If you like what you heard or you're interested in hearing more, subscribe to Good Cop Bad Cop. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time.